Thank you very much, Alison. Um, so I'm talking with two hats on here, as has explained. Much of the research work I'm talking about comes out of my lab at the University of York, formerly at Durham. Uh, but I'm going to tell you about the Food and Environment Research Agency because a lot of what we're doing with respect to pesticides uh, has a lot of overlap with the work of the agency. Uh, so what I'm going to do is tell you about the Food and Environment Research Agency, tell you a little bit um, about the big picture of food security and, and the importance of pesticides, and then tell you how plants deal with the chemicals that they come in contact with, in particular with herbicides. And introduce something to you which is something we've been working on over the last few years, uh, and which we term the Xeno. Uh, and I'll explain and define that as I go along. Then I'm going to tell you a little bit about why we think that Xeno is important, and then tell you about how, how evolution and plants have a, we, uh, a way of overcoming a lot of our clever technology today, and tell you about the advent of herbicide resistance in grass weeds. Uh, and then ultimately I'll just spend a little bit of time at the end telling you how we can use sort of this information in new ways, in particular in a new type of technology which you may have heard of called synthetic biology. So as the client kindly introduced me, I mean basically I've been at Ferris since 2010. I'm only at the university one day a week, I spend most of my time uh, battling around the civil service otherwise. Uh, I was formerly at Durham University uh, and I've worked in both the private and public sector, largely around crop protection issues. So you may have or may not have seen John Bennington give talks about what he calls the trilemma of the 21st century, the coming together of um, climate change, population and uh, depreciation of our land resources, and also a lack of general chemical resources coming together to create major challenges for us uh, in, the, in the coming decades. Well, here in the United Kingdom, the, um, the department which oversees our farming and our environment at DEFRA, and I'll explain the relationship between DEFRA and FERRA in just a moment. But if you went to any country in the world and you looked at their departments being responsible for agriculture, you'd probably see these similar kind of priorities coming through of enhancing the environment and biodiversity, supporting British farming in this instance, encouraging sustainable food production, and supporting a strong, sustainable green economy resilient to climate change. And what FERRA does is it supports its core department in achieving those goals by carrying out research work and also implementing DEFRA, um, DEFRA regulatory needs and also imposing policies. So basically we're a science agency, an agency doing different things in different countries. Uh, what it, this particular agency in the UK means that we are an arm's length body of DEFRA, so we are what we call an executive agency, we have to balance our books. Uh, much of the income of which comes from DEFRA, but we also get money from government departments and also from industry. And it's our role to carry out research work and research work to uh, then to give expert advice back to the department, uh, to provide national capability in the event that things go wrong, and also to provide uh, regulatory services through inspection teams. And all of this work has to be carried out to high standards. All applied research this is not basic work. It's very complementary, but um, does not overlap enormously with the work going on in universities. And it's work that's carried out to high standard and has to be carried out under resilient conditions. So if things go badly wrong in the country, we, the agency has a capability of carrying on. So this is what we call the Ferris Science Wheel. It kind of tries to overviews really what we're about. Uh, basically, we're involved in surveying new threats entering the food and environment chain. And they come through at a quite a rate, and most of the time we're able to intercede them. And the first thing, of course, that you need to do when you've got a new threat is identify it. And once you've identified it, our 
risk assessors can then tell our policy um, staff can then call departments what steps need to be put in place to minimise risk to the population and the environment. What we can then do is develop methods so that we can assay this risk and it might be a new disease, it might be a chemical entering the food chain. We can then start to work um, materials out in the field just by utilising portable uh, diagnostics, of which I'll describe in just a moment. And once we've shown that those can be robustly used, we can then start to implement a response and then effectively exclude those threats from our environment and food chain. And all the way along, you can see here where academia and industry feed in, um, where we're giving in, uh, information, for example, to policy and to industry. And once we've completed that cycle and, and dealt with that problem, then we can move back to surveillance again. This work is largely carried out at a very major government research institute. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. Most people haven't, even the ones who live quite close by to us. It's on the outskirts of York, just off the A64 as they drive out to Scarborough. Uh, it's an 80 acre site, it was built in 1995. It's probably the last government-funded large laboratory that uh, will be put up in the UK. Um, it is surrounded by an electric fence, not because of anything particularly sinister that goes on there. It's because we have an animal house facility, including we're a licensed holder for, for wild animals, and we have home office labs as well on the site, which also need to be protected. So it's a secure government site, but most of the work that on goes there is very much based around food and environmental safety. So what we do is we carry out what we call the three R's, we carry out research uh, in support of our ability to respond to emergencies and also our ability and necessary to impose government regulations. And we have four major science areas, uh, plant health and crop security, environmental risk, wildlife management and food safety. I'm just going to go through some of the work in each of those four science areas in turn. So in wildlife management, um, most of the time we don't get involved in emergencies like foot and mouth, but we, we clearly do get called out when it's all hands to the pumps. Uh, perhaps the sort of more routine kind of work that we're trying to uh, avoid these sorts of instances, birds flying to airplane engines and bringing the aircraft down, and this is uh, unfortunately more, um, it happens more regularly than we'd like. Now one of the ways in which we can help to avoid those incidents is to understand bird movements in and around airports. Uh, one of the ways in which we're doing that increasingly is deploying specialist types of radar systems that originally developed for following small missiles. And these are now being developed so that they can now pick up uh, small birds or large birds and even tell you what kind of bird is flying by based on the uh, Doppler effect from its wings beating together. Now, based on that information, we can see why birds are moving in and around airports at certain times of the day. We can alter the habitat in which those birds live in, so we make those sorts of patterns of movements less likely to bring uh, down aircraft. We can also use exactly the same technology to assess the likelihood of birds being injured by the building of wind turbines. We have very topically at the moment, uh, in short, some of you've been following the news, uh, a long-term badger surveillance study based down in Gloucestershire, so this is not based in York, this is based down in Gloucester. And here we're trying to understand the ecology of badgers, uh, the way in which they uh, move between subpopulations, uh, the way in which they interact with farm animals and indeed with farm buildings, and assess therefore the likelihood of spreading tuberculosis to cattle. And so that's very much yeah, a topical news item at the moment. And uh, what else have we got here? We've got effectively we have invasive species which establish themselves in the UK and start to disrupt national, uh, natural biodiversity. At uh, some instances, we will actually uh, have to eradicate them, and that's what this guy's got his specialised air going to do. Uh, food safety. What we're particularly uh, renowned for in the UK is we respond to the Food Standards Agency, so they're the guys who monitor food safety, and we're the people who do the analytical work. 
And we're very much rolled out when we have a food contaminants entering the food chain. So, for example, in 2008, dioxins got into the pork supply uh, through an Irish supplier, got all around the world, and it was our labs uh, at Ferra which identified the dioxins responsible for where they come from. So there's very difficult analytical work based on the very low levels of these compounds present in foods that can cause toxic effects. Uh, we also have um, an authentication service, so we can use isotopic methods to tell supermarkets or suppliers where food materials are originating from anywhere in the world. And that's becoming increasingly important with new badging. So, for example, people are now wanting to know if Palmer hand does indeed come from Palmer. Um, we've seen many cases as well of provenancing in the UK itself. Uh, we have other bits which are interested in materials moving from the inside of tins, for example, packaging materials into foodstuffs, obviously something we don't want to see. Bisphenolic um, being a very prominent example of that recently. And we also have a commercial service which sends out samples around the world to accredit their analytical um, operations by sending effectively materials which are dosed with tiny amounts of pesticides or pollutants uh, and we ask other labs around the world to verify their ability to, to detect them accurately. Environmental risks are very much based around pesticides entering the environment, though increasingly we're also seeing other chemicals move into the environment, like pharmaceuticals. Clearly you want to understand how they move, their likelihood of causing toxic effects to birds, to bees. Um, so we have a, an ecotoxicology unit. Uh, we're home of the National Bee Unit, uh, 150 uh, bee uh, We're very interested there in understanding the apparent uh, demise of pollinators. Uh, but more importantly, perhaps, trying to eliminate some of the causes of disease uh, and infestations that are coming in from overseas and threaten our, uh, our honeybees here in the UK. Uh, and this is potentially showing one of the reasons, one of the methods by which we operate. This is plant health and crop security. There is indeed a plant health service, the National Plant Health Service, which has been running now for 40, 50 years. And its role is to try and keep out pests and diseases from the UK. So that's a Colorado potato beetle. And Farah and its progenitors, which go right back to uh, just around about the First World War, have been highly successful in keeping the Colorado potato beetle out of the UK. Now, what this, there's a quite a lot of information on this slide, but this is quite an interesting demonstration of how we do these things these days. This is actually a lateral flow device. That's a, a diagnostic sensor based on, antibody, um, based on an antibody-based detection method, very much like a pregnancy testing kit, in, in fact. And if you take a plant material, mash it up, and then spot it onto that detector, it will tell you whether there's a, a pathogen present. And that can be very important because sometimes plants look diseased, but other times they may just be suffering desiccation or some other abiotic stress. And it's based on those sorts of decisions and the decisions that these guys are carrying out. These are inspectors. They're, in, they're looking at a, a, some apples that are coming to the UK on a boat, and they found egg cases inside that belong to an insect. So we need to know whether those insect cases belong to an important pest entering the country, or whether they're a harmless, um, harmless uh, stowaway. And based on the information that we get from those lateral flow devices, or in this case, utilizing a DNA amplification method, those apples could be impounded and destroyed, or allowed into the country, depending on whether they're safe or not. Now, sometimes we don't get it right. The, the diseases get into the country before we realize. Uh, this is an example here of, of a disease that's damaging particularly damaging trees on the west side of the country. This is uh, Phytophthora remorum, which causes sudden oak death. Uh, it's much taken recently to attacking Japanese large trees. And what we're doing here is removing rhododendron bushes from in and around those uh, stands of forest, because rhododendron is a natural secondary host for the Phytophthora pathogen. If you remove rhododendron from likely outbreak spots, 
you can massively reduce the uh, likelihood of disease. Uh, earlier on in the uh, food chain, we are also working uh, in our site at Cambridge in giving plant breeders rights. So this is where um, a plant breeding company will come up with a new seed. They want to show that the seed has improved qualities, characteristics, so they can get uh, some funding back for all of the uh, investment they put into it. And we oversee these trials to ensure that new uh, crop varieties deliver as they say on the tin. So a little bit about feather. Um, what I'm going to do now is, is move into um, talking to you about some of the trilemma which re relates around agriculture. And, and here a dilemma that up until very recently was crisis what crisis. So this is the Times Weekend Review, I think it's from 2005, uh, forecasting just a few years ago the demise of farming in the UK. And for those of workers working in the um, R&D side of crop protection for the last 20 years, this thinking has been very pervasive and has basically not been particularly helpful in funding the type of research that we need to have done. Of course, what we've all realised over those years is that human population has been rising, but this is quite an effective uh, piece of information put together by the chemical company Syngenta. And what they were saying is that uh, a, a hectare of agricultural land in 1960 uh, was feeding two people. By 2025, uh, that one hectare of land is now going to have to feed five people. So it's an awful lot more we've got to squeeze out of agriculture. As I explained in the moment, that's because uh, we don't have an awful lot of new land to, to draw on. So here in the UK, there's a, a programme called the 2020 programme, which wants by the year 2020 to achieve um, average figures for uh, wheat production per hectare of 20 tonnes. So that's well above what we get routinely now. There are a few farms in the UK which will be creeping up towards that, but most of them will be well clear of it. Uh, and they're going to achieve this effectively by moving away, as we have seen over the last few years, set-aside agriculture, land effectively not being used, set-asides are now finished, so uh, in fact there aren't any set-aside plots in the UK. And we are going to be moving increasingly back to intensification of agriculture. And you'll see a lot of this being talked about in government departments and in the agrochemical industrial sector. Sustainable intensification, getting more from our farmland, but without in a sustainable way. Now, this sounds like a, a real major challenge, but in fact, mankind's risen to it before. Uh, just after the Second World War, we saw the Green Revolution, which saw enormous increases in food production across the world, in developed and undeveloped countries. And this shows effectively some of those increases over that, um, over that passage of time. Uh, what we see roundabout now in many of these areas is actually plateauing off of some of our uh, major, major crops, and that's probably due to the um, lack of investment over the last few years. But we can learn a lot from our, our forebears in terms of understanding how they achieved those increases in food production. And there were four major reasons. One of them was improved engineering, mechanisation and mechanical irrigation. The advent of modern fertilisers and their distribution. Better seed varieties, which wanted to get a particular public and private sectors to, to come up with better, more reliable seeds, in particular with the cereals, with the dwarfing varieties of wheat and, and rice, which grow to a much, uh, a much shorter, but uh, have a corresponding increase in yield. And importantly, from, a, from somebody like myself with a crop protection background, it was the advent of modern agrochemistry, the development of modern pesticides. So what I'm going to do now is really talk about pesticides and, and whether, or not we can, whether or not we see them as a friend or a foe. Again, this is quite an interesting slide which puts into perspective what we're expecting of agriculture uh, in the last few years. 
And this shows us effectively with a world population of 6 billion people uh, what we're doing to the world's uh, biosphere. This is some talking about its terrestrial um, uh, attributes. At the moment, we're farming about 1.5 billion hectares and we're utilising crop protection agents in intensive agriculture. We could make it more intensive, but we're certainly uh, already utilising lots of crop protection agents. Uh, it's been calculated that if we stopped using crop protection agents, we'd need to use a lot more land because we lose productivity. And that would mean we would now move to 4 billion hectares of land that we would now have to operate to support a population of 6 billion. Now what's shown on the right hand side there is the, is the way the world's land mass splits up. So we've got a 1.5 billion hectares used for farming, 3.4 billion in grassland and prairie, 3.8 billion for forest steppe, and then 4.3 billion for deserts, glaciers and mountains. What this slide suggests is if we stopped using crop protection chemicals, we'd already be eating into some of these very pristine and important bits of biosphere in forest steppe and grassland prairie. But importantly, by 2025, if we went to move to crop protection, we're now chewing up an enormous amount of uh, the free productive land, uh, which is currently being used for uh, forestry and prairie. So if we now look at where those pesticides are that we're, going to, that we're using come from and how they're being utilised, we can see rather surprisingly from most people's perspective that in fact the largest group of sales of compounds, this is largely in the United States, but the pattern's not that much different here in the UK, you probably see a greater proportion of fungicides being sold here. Um, you can see that herbicides are by far and away the most important segment of the agrochemical sector. Interesting, this slide shows the tailing off around 2000 and that's not because um, farms were using, um, well, they needed less herbicides, because this is when the US uh, agroeconomy moved over to Roundup-ready technology, that's to say they utilised genetically modified maize and soil, which was glyphosate resistant. So they're actually spending less on pesticides because they're spending more on seeds. So I'm going to talk now a little bit about herbicides. Many of you probably utilise them occasionally in your garden, but just, they're an important group of crop protection agents and they come in two basic flavours. They come in the non-selective flavour, which will kill all plants. This is your, the stuff that you would use for clearing your lawn, uh, effectively chemical mulching. Um, and these are very useful compounds in their own right, but they're not very helpful if you've already got a crop planted or you've planted your seeds and you want to see your crop develop, but you don't want to see the weeds develop. In those cases, you use a group of compounds called selective herbicides. And these effectively kill the weeds and cause minimal damage to your crop plant. Interestingly, there are a number of potential causes by which that um, phenomenon can work. Um, and it's been determined over many years of study that, in fact, the most important determinant of whether you kill a plant by spraying a selective herbicide on it or not is dependent upon how fast that plant will detoxify, that's to say, break down that herbicide to less toxic agents. So this is a very simplified schematic showing what's going on here. This is a herbicide sprayed onto a leaf. It will move across the waxy cuticle of the leaf into the plant cells, and then typically it starts undergoing a set of chemical reactions. In many cases, it actually starts to increase its reactivity, and in many cases, its ability to kill the plant. Now, at this point, you really have to get rid of that entity from the cell before you start suffering toxic injury. So there's a whole set of detoxification reactions which occur, which then allow the compound to be deposited in the vacuole. Now the reason this is kind of startlingly similar to is working in plants as, it, as we would study in, in drug metabolism in animals is exactly the same steps occur in our own bodies, typically in the liver. Uh, exactly the same steps of, of detoxification. Except in humans, we don't store materials in a vacuole, instead we excrete them. 
So this is where we came up with the concept, and it was about seven or eight years ago, of an, describing the chemical entity that was responsible for all of this detoxification. Uh, and what we're saying here is definition is a biosystem which is responsible for detecting, detoxifying, and transporting xenobiotics. Xenobiotics means foreign compound. So it could be any foreign compound, be synthetic or not, but for most of what we'll be talking about today, talking about pesticides. And all organisms, all the way down from a bacteria up to uh, man, have a zeal of different levels of complexity. So there's a few complex sides. I'll try and just break this down into some simple um, steps. What we're showing here is if your compound, which is described here as being Rx, enters a cell, the first thing the cell wants to do is identify some means of doing something chemically to it to reduce its toxicity. A lot of synthetic compounds are actually designed to be relatively chemically inert so they can be used out in the environment. So the first thing your body, uh, the plant cell wants to do is introduce a reactive chemical group to it. And it can do this principally by two means. It can either hydrolyze something off or it can oxidize or reduce something. In this case, it will introduce a reactive group which can now undergo further conjugation. So chemicals can now be stuck onto it. Uh, and typically what you're trying to do here is make the compound more soluble. So some of the entities you can use are sugars or peptides. You can stick these peptides or sugars onto the molecule. You make it bigger, make it more polar, and you generally lock its toxicity on the head. And it's at that point that you can whisk these compounds out of the cytosol if you're a plant and put them into the vacuole. Now, one of the interesting things that we've discovered over the years is this is like a chemical machine. It works all the time. But when plants become um, exposed to agrochemicals, in particular certain types of agrochemicals, they can activate all of this detoxifying machinery. This is exactly what we see in drug detoxification in man. If man is exposed to, say, carcinogenic or toxic chemicals, we will increase the levels of these detoxifying enzymes in a very comparable way. So why is the xenome important, and why have, over the years have we received funding to study it? Well, I've tried to explain so far that it's, it determines herbicide selectivity, a very active xenome, rapid detoxification, save yourself from toxic effects caused by the herbicide. Um, it's also important because it removes pollutants from the environment, all of the stuff coming out of, out of chemical factories, residues in the soil, even the materials coming out of car exhausts. A lot of those will end up in plants, and it's the plant xenome which will detoxify them. Importantly, for us as consumers, it might, we might not actually ingest the parent pesticide that was sprayed onto the uh, plants originally. It might be a pesticide metabolite. So the xenome will determine pesticide residues in our food. And very importantly, uh, part of the registration package for any pesticide coming onto the market is our extensive studies looking at those pesticide residues and determining whether they're safe or not to go into the food supply. And the other thing that's kind of extraordinary about what's going on in the xenomenzymes, these are enzymes that are working on synthetic chemicals. Prior to the advent of the Industrial Revolution, plants had never come in contact with synthetic chemicals before, and yet they're very happily able to metabolize them. So this tells us that some of these enzymes are quite useful in taking out of plants and putting them into our technological applications, which I'll come on to at the very end of our talk. So clearly, as a scientist, you're driven to do certain things and you're interested in certain aspects of your, your work. Um, so we've asked some very basic questions over the years, some of them with, and answered them some more successfully than others. So why are plants able to metabolize synthetic compounds in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the first place? 
Interestingly, we have gone back through historical records that there is no evidence that plants are better able to metabolize synthetic compounds now than they were before Industrial Revolution, based on some of the studies we've done on, on seed extracts that we've, uh, we've been working on. Um, why is this metabolism species specific? Why do crop plants metabolize these compounds faster than weeds? This is generally sort of quite a fundamentally important question. If you take a xenome, based on the premise that these, um, these enzymes are only working on chemicals they've come in contact with for the last 60, 70 years, could we improve on those enzymes' performance? Could we make them more active, better, better at detoxifying synthetic common chemicals? What happens when things go wrong? This, to us, we know about antibiotic resistance in bacteria, and we know that some one of the mechanisms by which bacteria can become resistant to uh, antibiotics is they can metabolize them faster and scoop them from the body. Maybe that could happen with herbicides, and if so, what would be the consequence of that? And how else can we use these enzymes? So basically, natural products um, give us a very strong clue as to what the basis of uh, the metabolism, the different metabolism <coughs> in plants of synthetic entities. As all plants will have their own unique type of chemistry that they make themselves, and that means they've got their own enzymes that are able to process those compounds. And based on that chemical diversity, that means you've got a whole raft of different enzymes responsible for um, both synthesizing them and importantly for detoxifying them. What's not realized very often is a lot of the entities which are quite toxic to uh, us as, as animals when we eat plants are in many cases often autotoxic and there's a need to store them in non-toxic versions in the cell. So for example, this just gives you some premise of the, di the chemical diversity. This is one group of chemicals called alkaloids. And we can see here some of the um, very diverse structures that different plants will make. Uh, so these are isimian copanes, so these are tropane alkaloids. Uh, and this is a finca alkaloid produced in Madagascar periwinkles. And these are opiates um, uh, alkaloids produced in, in poppies. So all based around, effectively, um, different precursors giving rise to a whole raft of different chemical diversity. Now this chemical diversity, which gives us all the fantastic products that we get from plants, when it comes into conflict with uh, synthetic compounds, it mistakes these synthetic compounds for its own natural products, and each plant will start doing something very differently to that chemical. This is a compound which was invented back in the 1960s. It's, a, it's what's called a triazine herbicide. It's, been, it's used still quite extensively out in America in maize crops. And the reason it's been such a successful herbicide is it's extremely toxic to weeds, but it's not very toxic to maize. And the reason there is that weeds will attempt to knock off these groups that hang off this ring uh, utilizing oxidative methods. Whereas the maize plant comes along and it immediately detoxifies it in one step by pushing that chlorine atom off and replacing it with a peptide. So it's not just the rates of metabolism, it's also the roots of metabolism that dictate selectivity. And that selectivity is all about because of fundamental differences in the plant's ability to manufacture and detoxify its own natural products. Now, in the last few years, we've had some idea of the complexity of that ability to metabolize and detoxify synthetic chemicals and uh, indeed endogenous metabolites. So this is, I'm sure you've come across this in some of your other talks, Arabidopsis thaliana or Thalopress. In the year 2000, its total genome of about 30,000 genes was sequenced for the first time. And that for us opened up a Pandora's box of information about these xenome enzymes. So we could do informatic searches because we knew what some of the sequences of these things looked like. And we could show that Arabidopsis had 350 oxidative enzymes, something called a group of cytochrome P450s. 
Uh, that's relative to humans who have just about 50 of these enzymes. So plants have a considerable, considerably uh, parts number of these degradating enzymes compared to most animals. They had 107 enzymes that could sugar conjugates, uh, synthetic chemicals, 54, 54 that could join peptides onto them, and 129 transporter proteins. So this was a fantastic blueprint really, and started to explain where all of this diversity could arise from, because there's an enormous genetic diversity underpinning it all. So what I'm going to do in the next few slides is just give you some information about how our advances in understanding of how the genome functions. Uh, and just typically talk you through some of the ways in which we do our work. So we start off by trying to understand how xenobiotics are metabolized um, in plants. We will then typically start to purify and identify the, the proteins responsible for this metabolism. We'll then carry out molecular genetic work to try and confirm their importance, typically by taking the genes which encode these enzymes and putting them into other plants and seeing whether they acquire resistance to xenobiotics. And we can also take those enzymes and we can make them more active. So completely unimportant what we're showing here in terms of the chemistry, but this just illustrates the complete diversity in different plants of all the metabolic groups that you see a single compound undergo. Now, what we would typically do in this case was we would put a radiolabel, a radioactive isotope, into different positions of the molecule, and we would study which particular route of metabolism this was undergoing by following the radiochemical working its way through all of those different intermediates. And in that way, we can get a very detailed view surprisingly quickly these days using um, high-resolution mass spectrometry methods in concert with these detection uh, methods and work out what the metabolic roots of metabolism of any given compound would do. And this is the sort of information that's absolutely vital for anyone releasing a new pesticide in the environment uh, here in the UK or elsewhere in the world. We would then take enzymes that we were interested in and we'd take them from thousands of different proteins we'd find in that cell and we'd purify them to a single band. And once we've got that single band of protein, we can sequence it. And from its protein sequence, we can then move to its genetic sequence. Once we've got a genetic sequence, we can clone the gene. And once we can clone the gene, we can then ask, what, what does it do at a, at a living plant? What we've done here, in fact, is some work we've done with a chemical company. And they were interested in understanding the basis of selectivity in soybean, one of the world's major crops. We found a group of enzymes which make up the xenon called the glutathione transferase, which are very highly expressed in the soybean plant. And what we were able to do, uh, these are wild type tobacco plants sprayed with this particular herbicide. But when we were uh, able to put our, um, our glutathione transferase into these tobacco plants, we could now show them to be highly resistant. We've made these tobacco plants as resistant as a soybean by putting in these single xenon enzymes. The reason that we're doing this is not to engineer tobacco to make them resistant to herbicides. It's to show the function of that enzyme and how important it would be in uh, soil. And the reason that's important is if you understand that that's an important enzyme, you can now design chemical discovery programs around it to try and design selective herbicides for soybeans. Now, once we've got the gene structure, we can then overexpress the protein. And if we're lucky, we can sometimes get that protein to crystallize. We can then study its structure. So this is, again, this is a, another glutathione transferase, this time from maize. Uh, and what we're able to do here, in fact, is this enzyme is, is, is formed of two donuts, effectively, that stick together. And the active sites of these enzymes are just tucked away in the interface between them. Now, clearly, what we're interested in here is these glutathione transferases were able to work on quite a wide range of herbicides, but some of them much less actively than others. 
So one way that you can do this in terms of improving enzyme activity, you can use rational engineering. So you can try and model the substrate into the active site, work out whether the residues are causing the biotransformation and making it more efficient. That's the chemist's way of doing things. Or if you're a microbiologist, what you tend to do is use something called forced evolution. You use evolutionary force itself to drive the, the uh, design of a new protein. So what we've done here is we've taken two parent enzymes, which are shown here by the two different colours, by the, the orangey-brown and the green, which closely resemble one another in terms of sequence, but had markedly different enzyme activities. And what we allow them to do is we chop them up and then we let them re-anneal together utilising what we call in vitro recombination. So effectively doing what the uh, genes would be naturally doing in a living cell. And what we found that formed out of those was a number of hybrid enzymes. Enzymes composed of blocks of sequence from the two different proteins. And what we were able to demonstrate was that some of those uh, chimeric proteins, proteins formed out of two different spots of sequence, had up to 20 times more efficiency in detoxifying herbicides than either of the parents. And what we could do demonstrate here, for example, uh, is this is a, a herbicide for a diaphragm with increasing concentrations being sprayed on little seedlings. And you can see when you spray a wild-type plant, that's to say it has a lot of this transgenic protein in it, you see a good deal of damage as you increase. But as you put this protein that we've evolved, this mutant enzyme with 20-fold increased levels of activity towards this herbicide, you can now start to see resistance, even at concentrations which would normally be totally toxic. And we can show here, in fact, that the mutant enzyme composed of the two component parts is more than the sum of them, so these are the two parent enzymes, again, quite susceptible to the herbicides at high concentrations. So this is effectively, gives us also clues as to what can happen in nature when nature suddenly takes a turn and generates superactive detoxifying enzymes. So this one I'm going to talk about in the next few slides is something that's happened in the last 30 years completely unexpectedly and is now a global phenomenon, and it's one of herbicide resistance. And this is a very famous photograph for weed scientists, of whom there are a depressingly small number left in the UK. But this is a field of um, wheat grown in uh, Pelham in Essex. And in 1982, a farmer reported uh, a weed outbreak in this particular field, which he was unable to control using any of the available graminicidal, that's to say grass-killing herbicides that he had available to him. And so workers from nearby Rothamsted went along to the site <coughs> They collected these weeds, they took them back to the lab, and they discovered, as exactly as the farmer had described, that these weeds were resistant to all known classes of herbicide. Um, and that's a very worrying phenomenon, but one, in fact, if you were a geneticist, you might have predicted arising from a slightly different route. So, if you think about it, herbicides applied year after year are applying a massive selective pressure to thousands and thousands of hectares where you've got a mixed population of weeds. Um, Despite the fact that there are potentially many hundreds of potential targets in a plant that would kill those plants uh, utilizing herbicidal intervention, in fact there are a very small number of active sites with which most herbicides which are commercially sold today operate on. So for example, these are four herbicides uh, of different types which are used uh, in UK agriculture. This one knocks out at a branch of amino acid biosynthesis. This will knock out um, photosynthesis. And this will knock out fatty acid metabolism, and this is a, a photosystem one photobleaching herbicide. And those are actually kind of, although they're just a small representation, that's about half of the different modes of action that we would typically be utilizing uh, as targets for herbicides here in the UK. So a relatively small number of target sites, 
farmers utilising herbicide year in, year out, sometimes because herbicides are cheaper than one another, they might be tempted to reapply the same herbicide year after year. You've got a perfect system here for now selecting resistance. Uh, if you repeatedly use those compounds with one mode of action, you will see resistance strength, and you can wobble that very accurately as to when you first see that. Um, and importantly, once you start to see this sort of resistance occurring, with selective herbicides, you're in big trouble because now you will kill your crop before you kill your competing weed. And this shows the advent of herbicide resistance as has occurred, uh, starting from the 1970s uh, up to the present day. And this is just basically different sorts of herbicide. And what you normally find is the earlier herbicides, so these are synthetic auxins, so things like 2,4-D, Agent Orange and other compounds of that sort. Um, that would have been started to be used in a big way back in the 60s and 70s, and by the early 70s we started to see resistance occurring to it. So basically, whenever I have the, 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 the launch point for this resistance trait uh, accumulation tends to be when the herbicide started to be used intensively for a couple of years. Now, importantly, there are two types of resistance which we now know about. There's the ones that we've just been like, just recently describing, it's basically a mutation in the target site of that herbicide which reduces its sensitivity. The other way in which it can occur is that you make a lot more of that target enzyme through something called gene amplification. And then there's something that's much more worrying because this you can actually um, control utilising rotation. So if you've got a single type of uh, resistance to one type of herbicide, next year you just come along and vary your mode of action, your herbicide you've got control again. What we've seen since 1982, and this has largely occurred in grasses, but we've seen it in several uh, broadleaf weeds as well, and this is happening all around the world, is what we call non-target site resistance. And this is where you see resistance to a whole raft of different herbicides with different mode of actions uh, for reasons which I'll just explain in a moment. So this just briefly explains the sort of what we're talking about here. Resistance caused by modified receptor. If the receptor, in this case your rat wearing his uh, Sony Walkman, can't hear the Pied Piper, then he's not going to be influenced by it. So this is effectively a means of blocking um, the effect of that particular herbicide. Pesticide resistance by metabolism is altogether more aggressive here. The rat's not bothered about what's trying to trap it, it just eats it. And the reason that we now know that that um, multiple resistance is occurring is because in these plants, their xenome has gone berserk. So basically they have overexpressed many of the enzymes that make up the xenome. And in fact, what, they're trying to, what they almost seem to have done is in the course of their evolution of being sprayed with these herbicides, they've now almost got exactly the same xenome as the crop that they're growing in, in amongst. So that means it's impossible utilising metabolism as a basis of selectivity to kill the weed before you've killed the crop. And importantly in the UK, our major weed that we've got here, about 700 different sites now around the UK, with different types of resistance, but mostly uh, now linked to multiple herbicide resistance, uh, is in black grass, so that's Alpacurus myceroides, which you'll see uh, in and around the fields around Oxford. Now, what are we talk about now? Some work, some very recent work from our lab, where we've been interested in trying to counteract the resistance. Because you know, if, if something's got a cause, ultimately you can come around with a, a means of suppressing it. Uh, back in the late 1990s, we determined that one single type of xenone enzyme, again a glutathione transferase, uh, which we termed AMGSTF1, was always associated with multiple resistance to herbicides, and we could virtually use it as a diagnostic marker. If someone gave us a black grass plant, we would test it and say, yes, this is multiple herbicide resistant because it's overexpressing this one protein. Now, 10 years ago, that's pretty much all we thought about it until we came back to thinking on it again in the last couple of years. 
And we started to think, well, maybe there's something more to this person than being just a biomarker. Could it have a causative role? Uh, could it be actually be helping to contribute to this multiple herbicide resistance? What this told us was we took this single protein, the gene encoding that protein, and we put it into another plant. And we found that those plants themselves became multiply resistant to herbicides. And they were doing this by a very complex trait. When you introduce this protein expressed in these, foreign, in these uh, host's plant cells, they started to change their metabolism. They started to upregulate their own xenome enzymes, and they started also to accumulate protective antioxidants, exactly the same sorts of things that we'd seen in black grass. So for reasons we still don't understand fully, this is work that we're just about to publish, um, what we're seeing here is that one protein can coordinately upregulate a whole raft of different protective, um, uh, protective uh, steps in these plant cells, rendering them resistant to whole ranges of different herbicides. Um, importantly, what, where we're going with this is that we've discovered a chemical which, through interacting with that glutathione transferase, appears to help us suppress the multiple herbicide resistance uh, phenotype. And so what we've got here is a chemical which, when co-sprayed with the herbicide, so this just shows you how resistant these plants are. So these are blackgrass plants growing uh, in a tub, and you can grow them with lollium rigidum, that's Italian ryegrass. You get, if you've got multiple herbicide resistant ryegrass, it's exactly the same thing. You can saturate these with herbicides well above their normal field rate. You see no damage on the plants at all. They're virtually immune to the stuff. Um, we've developed a, a, a chemistry, um, which we call the buster chemistry, which again doesn't show any toxicity to the plants, but when co-applied with the herbicide, gives us some partial control of, um, of the weed thing. We got very excited about this, but in fact, the agrochemical chemists at Syngenta wanted to see total kill rather than just suppression. So what I'd like to do in the last few slides is tell you how we can take some of those xenome enzymes and take them utilizing a lateral way of thinking out of the plant altogether and use them in a totally different way. So we'll come back to just the kind of reasons for doing this in just a moment. But the idea here is something, again, I don't know whether you've come across before, it's the idea of biorefining. You've probably heard about biofuels. Um, this extends that concept to effectively think where we can take plants and we can fractionate them in much the same way that we do crude oil into all of the products that we need for a modern uh, petrochemical age. And so these plants don't actually exist. This is just a fanciful uh, kind of um, conglomerate of images. And it's showing here, in this case, I think this will be miscanthus being harvested and turned into a fuel or a bulk chemical. And then we get value-added materials. So the idea is just like refining, you get every waste stream is used usefully. And so again, this helps us with uh, Bennington's trilemma because the depletion of resources extends to oil. Uh, and we know that round about now or in the very next few years, we're going to hit this point of maximal production. Uh, and thereafter, we're going to be having to use our oil resources much more carefully in the future. So, in terms of going to where we would need to be in the future, Photosynthesis has been uh, our major source of usable carbon. The thing is, it's photosynthesis that happened aeons ago. So it's ancient sunlight that was turned into oil reserves. And all we need to do now is to move to a world where we use ambient sunlight, which sounds like a fairly easy trick. But of course, getting useful things out of plants is considerably more difficult than it is getting things out of uh, oil. And one of the things that's been taxing uh, science in the last few years is how we could make biological systems more amenable to do things that they were never intended to do. Um, and so this is a science which you may or may not have heard of. It's one which has been very much in the news um, from 
agencies like the Royal Society the last couple of years. The idea of engineering, so rationally engineering biological systems to do things that engineers uh, and scientists want them to do rather than what nature has given us. So that makes that a little bit scary, but in some cases if we use under uh, conditions of containment, it can be a very useful way of thinking about biology and how you can use it for biotechnological applications. One of the things that we became interested in, and this is the network that I ran from 2008 to, to this year, uh, where we worked with um, biologists, chemists, physicists, engineers for both academia and industry, was we were interested in this idea of harnessing chemical diversity in the natural world in, in a rational way. And again, this is where we came back to thinking about our old stuff on the xenome, because the xenome is like a metabolic machine for converting uh, biomolecules from one type to another. So the idea that we had was to utilize uh, effective chemical pathways that give us intermediates, common intermediates, which we can then put into different types of cells, and each cell which it encounters will then start to modify that backbone chemistry in different ways. So this is a, a kind of extension of utilizing uh, synthetic chemistry uh, in, now into a total branch of synthetic biochemistry. And what we were interested in doing was designing chemicals using biological methods of production which would have value over and above those chemicals produced by chemical means. Now importantly, these products are not natural products. They do not work their way into the food chain as being badged as natural products because that's against the law. These are very much synthetic or GM products. But there are in fact important markets already for GM chemicals, um, for example in drugs, in biocides, and indeed in artificial food ingredients, though not here in the UK. Um, so what we wanted to do was initiate a program which would enable us to make compounds as synthetic and actually synthetic uh, sweeteners, utilizing a biological method for production which doesn't occur uh, in nature. What we found was when we wanted to start off with a material which we could readily obtain in large quantities, in thousand ton quantities, and such a chemical exists as a byproduct of brewing and also of biofuel production. Um, again, it's a chemical structure, not important, it's a chemical called ferulic acid, and this is present in the spent grain, so it's what's left over after you've fermented your grains and starches into alcohol. <laughs> and we thought we could take that simple backbone and we could turn it into what we call a dihydrochalcone, which is an entity which has very powerful sweetening type um, properties, about 500 to 1,000 times sweeter than sucrose gram for gram. And that's an important chemical that's used not only in the food industries around the world, uh, but also in animal feed for masking off tastes. So again, unimportant as how we did it, but what we did, we took enzymes from different plants, different microorganisms, and we've assembled them together, an artificial xenome, if you like, and put it into a yeast cell. And what we found is you can feed these entities in, and you start to see these dihydrochalcone sweeteners popping out into the medium. So this is an illustration of how you can take a bit of technology from a live plant cell, and thinking laterally, take those enzymes bit by bit, and then reassemble them in a rational way to make a new metabolic pathway in a different organism. So just to conclude, um, what I've tried to do here um, is to put the case that pesticides and herbicides, when they're used sustainably, and that's very important, we're now dealing with chemicals which compared to the entities when they were originally discovered in the 60s and 70s, herbicides would be applied in kilogram quantities per hectare. Now we're talking about 10 gram quantities per hectare. If we continue that pattern, we are putting a much lower chemical load into the environment. But importantly, we're able to uh, grow things sustainably on a smaller footprint of land. Now, that's being challenged at the moment by resistance to herbicide. I've talked about herbicide resistance, 
We've also got resistance to fungicides and resistance to insecticides. All of these are actively being researched, but these are real major growing threat to these goals of sustainable intensification. Fortunately, work is ongoing around the world, understanding better how these mechanisms are working at the level of detoxification. And importantly, if we take on board newly emerging sciences such as synthetic biology, eventually we have the potential to revolutionise uh, biotechnology and potentially ultimately agriculture. I'd like to acknowledge the, the many people involved in this in terms of the institutions involved, as the list would be quite long. Um, so 20 years worth of work at Durham University, both in the biology and the chemistry department. Actually, I moved my research group down to the chemistry department because of our close links with the chemists there. Currently working in the Centre for Novel Agricultural Products at the University of York. Um, we get a lot of our funding from the Bio, Biological and Bio, Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council, uh, particularly most recently through this Biofunding Technology Initiative. And we work closely with a number of companies, uh, most notably Syngenta or IC, what was ICI Crop Protection here in the UK. Thank you for your attention.